Oh. Music and murder contains violence, oh. profanity, oh. and graphic material that may not be suitable for children oh. or people with weak stomachs. Oh. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. And just like that, all of a sudden it's Halloween. But we've been wearing these fucking masks for so long now that it doesn't even seem like it. But this episode will help because rather than talk about one incident, I'm going to read you 10 letters from 10 serial killers. Some are a little funny, some are a little gross. By the way, speaking of funny, here's a joke. A man is hitchhiking, another man picks him up. The hitchhiker tells the man, thank you for picking me up, but how do you know that I'm not a serial killer? The man driving the car looks at the hitchhiker. He smiles a bit. He then proceeds to pull over in a desolate area. He then laughs for a second, and he tells the hitchhiker, well, you know, I know that you're not a serial killer because the odds of two serial killers being in this car are astronomical. They both have a chuckle. Then the driver pulls out a 357 Magnum and he shoots the hitchhiker right in the face. But what makes this funny? Well, the hitchhiker was in fact a serial killer. So, therefore, it is funny. And it's also funny because why, Chow? It's funny because he's fat. Oh no, 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 Chow. Don't, don't talk shit like that. You're gonna get me canceled. I don't wanna get canceled. But I don't know, I mean, it does seem pretty lucrative these days to be canceled, right? So for Halloween, I'm either gonna go as Joe Exotic or Morgan Wallen, I don't know, they, they kinda dress very much the same. Anyway, thank you in advance for hanging out with me tonight. This is episode number eight of Music and Murder, and I'm calling it the Halloweeny episode. Episode, episode, episode. Over the centuries, there have been hundreds of documented cases of serial murder around the world, but the term serial killer is relatively new. Up until the 1970s in the US, serial killers were generally called mass murderers by both the criminal justice system and the media. Today, however, we draw a very clear distinction between serial murder and mass murder. Unlike serial homicide, which is manifested in a number of separate events, mass murder is a one-time event that involves the killing of multiple people at one location. Now, a mass murder normally occurs when the perpetrator who is often deeply troubled suffers a psychotic break from reality and strikes out at his or her perceived tormentors in a blitz-like attack. Unlike serial killers, mass murderers are frequently, but not always, killed at the scene of the crime. Sometimes they are shot by law enforcement. Sometimes they are shot by themselves. So exactly why am I telling you all this shit? You're just like, give me some gore. Tell me some, some bad stories. Well, I'm telling you all this shit because I want you to know where the term serial killer actually came from. 
Now, as explained by Peter Voronsky in his 2004 book, Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters, which I've read, very good book, the term serial killer was likely coined by the late FBI agent and profiler Robert Ressler. According to the story, Ressler was lecturing at the British Police Academy in Brashmill. Uh, it's actually Bramshill, sorry. You know how I love the butcher words. And this is in England in 1974, where he heard the description of some crimes as occurring in series including rapes, arsons, burglaries, robberies, and murders. Ressler said that the description reminded him of the movie industry term serial adventures, which referred to short episodic films featuring the likes of Batman, The Lone Ranger, shit like that. Now each week, youthful matinee audiences were lured back by the next installment in the series by an inconclusive ending known as a cliffhanger that left them wanting more. Now the FBI agent recalled from his youth that no episode had a satisfactory conclusion and the ending of each one increased rather than decreased the tension in the viewer. Similarly, wrestler believe that the conclusion of every murder increases the tension and desire of a serial killer to commit a more perfect murder in the future, one closer to their ideal fantasy. Thus, rather than being satisfied when they murder, serial killers are instead agitated toward repeating their killings in an unending serial cycle. Kind of makes sense, right? And here, all this time, I thought they just killed for lucky fucking charms. My first letter that I'm going to read you is a letter from a serial killer named Albert Fish. This is the most infamous serial killer letter that was ever written. On May 25th, 1928, Albert Fish read an ad in the paper that was posted by a young man named Edward Budd, and then he decided that he would murder Budd. Fish by then, an accomplished rapist and murderer, visited Budd's family under the pretense of offering the man a job. But when he met his 10-year-old sister, Grace, Fish decided to change his intended victim. The following is a letter that Fish sent anonymously to Grace Bud's mother after killing and eating her. This is the document that eventually led to Albert Fish's arrest. The anonymous letter read like this. Well, it was exactly this. My dear Mrs. Bud. In 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. 
At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was one to three dollars per pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold for food in order to keep the others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted to cut from it, a boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and is sold as veal cutlets, brings the highest price. John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven. He took them to his home, stripped them naked, and tied them up in his closet, and then burned everything they had on. Several times, every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11 year old boy because he had the fattest ass and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except for the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next, and he went on the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street. He told me so often how good human flesh was, and I made up my mind to taste it. On June 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street and brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped off all my clothes. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and I called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said that she would tell her mom. First I stripped her naked, how she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her into small pieces so I could take the meat to my room, cook, and eat it. How sweet and how tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. Albert Fish, 
wrote this to Grace Bud's mother after he ate her and of course killed her. If you don't know anything about Albert Fish, look him up. This guy had, uh, I, I don't even know where to start. His stomach was full of needles because he would stick needles in his stomach. He, he was very much one of the most fucked up individuals that I've ever, ever encountered. And you know me, I have encountered a lot of fucked up individuals. So, anyway, look him up. Outside my window I hear him calling I hear him sing He burns me with his eyes of gold to embers He sees all my sins He reads my soul One day that birdie spoke to me Like Martin Luther, like Pericles Come join the murder Come fly with black We'll give you freedom From the human trap Come join the murder the hand of God 
And that was the Great White Buffalo here on Serial Killer FM K-Fuck. 
on to our next story. Donald Harvey. I don't know how many of you have heard of Donald Harvey. He was a former CPA in a hospital in Ohio and another hospital in Kentucky. Actually, I think he worked in a few different hospitals. During the 1970s and 1980s is when he basically did all his murdering. During this time, he killed an estimated 37 patients. That's right, 37. That's over double how many people Jeffrey Dahmer killed. And to add to that, not only is it 37 patients, that's 37 patients that are confirmed. The real victim count is believed to be much higher as Harvey claimed that the figure was closer to 70. His killing spree began by accident after hooking up a patient to an empty oxygen tank and then he just couldn't stop. He decided that this was something that he really liked to do. Kill people. The cold-blooded killer never showed any remorse for his crimes. In one interview, he said, Some of those patients might have lasted a few more hours or a few more days, but they were all going to die. I know you think I played God, and I did. So I guess if you really buy into Donald Harvey's philosophy, for lack of a better word, might as well just kill anybody and everybody because we're all going to die anyway, right? In a chilling letter that he wrote behind bars, the serial killer joked because he had a sense of humor. He said, or rather wrote, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change the things that I can, and the wisdom to hide the bodies of those people I had to kill because they pissed me off. So I found that a bit intriguing. It's a little different for serial killers to have a sense of humor like that. My next letter that I want to read a little excerpt from is from Dr. H.H. Holmes. And the fact that he was a doctor is still debatable, but he called himself a doctor. Now, Dr. H.H. Holmes, he was a twisted fucker. Like, really twisted. He built a murder castle. That's right, he built a murder castle in Chicago with the intention to kill as many victims as possible. The hundred room building, and I, I don't know how he got it to be an even hundred, but the hundred room building had long winding corridors that would disorient victims, literally give them vertigo. It also had trap doors like you see in the movies. I don't know where they led to, but I guess it's just kind of like dropped down to a bunch of alligators or some shit. I don't know. But it had trap doors, false walls, and gas chambers. That's right. Dr. H.H. Holmes was killing people via gas chamber before the United States really was killing other people with gas chambers. He kind of started the whole thing. Holmes then sold 
the cadavers to medical research institutions. Now you do see this a lot, even in this day and age. There was a case just a little while back, like 10, 15 years ago, where a guy was actually taking cadavers from funeral homes and selling the body parts. And in H.H. Holmes days, the organs were traded on the black market and obviously probably sold. Now on April 11th, 1896, he wrote a full letter of confession to the Philadelphia North American newspaper. He wrote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me ever since. So basically what H.H. Holmes was saying is when he was born, the devil was right there and the devil stayed with him, and he did the devil's bidding his whole entire life. I kind of believe this because if you know the story of Dr. H.H. Holmes and everything that he did and how many people he killed, which I'm not going to get into in this episode, but it's pretty twisted, and he killed a lot of people. Now, after writing this letter to the Philadelphia North American newspaper... One month later, he was hanged. He was hanged high, and he died immediately. The prison that he was hanged at was called the Moyhamensin Prison. So, it's M-O-Y-A-M-E-N-S-I-N-G. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm not going to even try again. But that's what happened to H.H. Holmes. He was hung. The next lovely person that I want to talk about is Gary Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. He had a body count of 48 people. And if you read anything, it'll say 48 sex workers. Sex workers are people, so I don't know why we have to judge them and call them sex workers. But he confessed to murdering 48 people in the state of Washington. And the time span was during the 1980s and 1990s. Ridgway said, I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. And there is some factual proof to back that up. If any of you are familiar with the Willie Picton case in Canada, his body count was very, very similar. I think it was only one off. I think he killed one more person or one less person than Gary Bridgeway. But he also targeted sex workers. And sex workers, one thing about them, they don't have a very good family foundation usually, like 99.999% of the time. So if they end up missing... Nobody really calls, and it's, it's really sad. But anybody that's getting into the sex trade world, sex trade lifestyle, they know this. By the way, if you hear some shit in the background, I'm in my garage, and the neighbors are having a huge party. So I don't get the luxury of having a studio 
and having a team write everything for me and do all the editing. I do everything myself. So if you hear some noises in the background, my apologies for not being rich enough to have a studio and all that shit. So now in 1984, Gary Ridgway wrote a letter about the murders titled What You Need to Know About the Green River Man. The Green River Man is what Gary Ridgway called himself. Although I wouldn't really call him a man. He was a piece of shit coward and he basically killed people that were helpless because he was a punk bitch coward. But he sent this letter, What You Need to Know About the Green River Man, to the Seattle Post Intelligencer. That's right. It's the Seattle Post Intelligencer. Because Intelligencer is a very intellectual word, right? I mean, in my opinion, I think it's dumb as fuck. In disturbing detail, the killer wrote about necrophilia and cutting off the fingernails of the victims before signing off as Call Me Fred. All one word. Call Me Fred. Which I have no idea what that means, but... But I'm sure it meant something to him. Maybe. Maybe not. Police claimed that it was a brazen attempt to throw off investigators. At the time, they did not follow up on this key evidence. Ridgway's game of cat and mouse with the police finally came to an end in 2001, when DNA evidence connected him to the murders, like so many other murderers like around that time that all thought that DNA was never going to exist. He was spared the death penalty as part of a plea bargain where he disclosed the locations of the missing bodies. His plea bargain raised his murder convictions to 49, which I believe was Willie Picton's number two. I would have to look that up and I'm not gonna take the time to do that, but I think that they are pretty much even on how many people they killed. And in this case, it was prostitutes. But unlike Willie Picton, Gary Ridgway is actually pretty intelligent and he intrigues me because he was able to really have this ruse and this double life going for a very long time. He was married and had a very normal life. Willie Picton was a dirty, disgusting piece of fuck. So, I mean, not that Gary Ridgway wasn't a piece of fuck, but there is a difference in their lifestyles and what they portrayed to be in the public eye. Okay, so moving on, we're moving on to the Moore's murderers, Ian Brady and Myra Henley. They killed five children between 10 and 17 years old in the early 1960s, which was very uncommon for child murdering back in the 1960s, very uncommon. Three graves were discovered on the Saddleworth Moor in Manchester. And for anybody that doesn't know, Manchester is in England. But the killers never revealed the final resting place for the other victims. Henley claimed that she was under Brady's spell and that she took part in the crimes against her will. Kind of like Carla Homoka, if you know who that is, from the Ken and Barbie killers. However... Ian, he tells a different story. And there was also pictures 
of Myra Hindley standing on the graves of the kids that they killed, smiling. Which kind of makes it seem like she wasn't acting under duress. And for those of you that don't know what duress means, duress basically means acting against your will because somebody else is controlling you. In one letter that Ian wrote from prison to a journalist, Ian Brady explained, Hindley has crafted a Victorian melodrama in which she portrays herself as being forced to murder serially. We both habitually carried revolvers and went for target practice on the moors. If I were mistreating her, she could have shot me dead at any time. For 30 years, she said she was acting out of love for me. Now she maintains she killed because she hated me. A completely irrational hypothesis. In character, she is essentially a chameleon, adopting whatever camouflage will suit and voicing whatever she believes the individual wishes to hear. She can kill both in cold blood or in rage. Now this letter from Ian Brady regarding Myra Hindley is very well educated as far as reading level like there's a lot of big words and stuff in it you don't usually hear serial killers talk this way so that in itself is kind of intriguing i would definitely look up the moore's murderers if you haven't already educated yourself on those the next song i'm going to play for you here on serial killer radio k fuck is going to be a song from one of my favorite rappers scarface this is a song called born killer and by the way I've been getting a lot of emails about people saying I'm not playing enough rap music. And I love rap music. I listen to more rap music than I listen to country music, even though I'm a country singer. But the fact is, a lot of good rap artists have not been sending me stuff to play. A lot of the rap that I've been getting has been very, very bad. And I don't want to put you through having to listen to stuff that's not good. So if you are a rapper and you have some good stuff, please... Send it to me at murdercast at mail.com. Not gmail, at mail.com. Or follow me on Instagram at murder underscore, excuse me, music underscore murder underscore podcast. That is music underscore murder underscore podcast. And send me a link. And if I like it, I will message you back and tell you to send me an MP3. It's that simple. And I would love to play your stuff on here. That's what this show is about, is promoting music while intertwining with nice stories of murderers. Not that they're nice. If you're listening to this, obviously you are intrigued by it like I am. So anyway, without further ado, this is Scarface, Born Killer, we will be right back with more stories. Stories, stories, stories. I'm a born killer. You face to face with Scarface. You try to isolate, but that's a motherfucking waste. Your school's fucked up, G. And your mama should have warned you about a nigga like me. Cause I don't weep and I don't sleep. Say that motherfucking black, cause talk is cheap. Better since you got beef. 
Welcome back. Music and Murder Halloween episode number eight. Not that it's Halloween episode number eight. It's episode number eight, the Halloween episode. That would be a little more accurate. And you could hear people screaming in the background because my neighbors are partying their balls off. Once I finish this episode, I might go party mine off. I, I, I don't know yet. Anyway, okay, so the Axeman, which is my next story is from New Orleans. He is an, una, I shouldn't even be calling him a him 
Because it could have been a woman for all we know. Lizzie Borden was a woman that killed everybody with an axe. But the axe man of New Orleans is an unidentified serial killer who butchered six victims and injured 12 others in 1918 and 1919. A letter believed to be from this killer was published in newspapers and claimed that he would spare anyone who was playing jazz music. That's right, jazz music could save your life back then in New Orleans. Now, dated March 13th, 1919, this anonymous killer wrote, Hello, I am the Axeman, the neighborhood anonymous killer. Just kidding. He wrote, I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the neither regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. So basically, jazz could save your life in 1919 in New Orleans. Then the murders suddenly stopped as quickly as they started. The crimes to this day, the crimes from the Axeman in New Orleans to this day, remain unsolved. So, you never know, you might just want to put on a jazz record. Not me, because I don't like jazz. But to those of you that do, maybe put on a record just because. Because jazz musicians need some love too. Now our next little letter comes from the Beltway Snipers, which I have to be honest, I don't really know much about. I know what they look like. I know how they cut a hole in the trunk of the car to shoot random people because they were outstanding citizens and obviously didn't have any enemies that they can go after because I never ever will ever tell people to kill anybody, but if you do have to kill somebody, maybe kill somebody that did something to you. I, I don't know. It's like, I don't really get the fact of why people would go with just shoot random people. It, it doesn't make any sense. We all have enemies. I, I don't know. So over a three-week span in 2002, the Beltway Snipers killed 10 people. 10 people in the states of Maryland and Virginia. Another seven individuals were murdered elsewhere. So 17 altogether. 17 innocent people that these motherfuckers didn't even know. I mean, that's just disgusting. Now, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo shot each victim with a single bullet fired from a distance. Then the killers vanished. They vanished in a car, and I cannot remember the make and model of the car, but it was black. They cut a hole in the trunk where the key goes, and that's where they were actually putting the rifle out of the trunk. They later wrote down their demands in a three-page letter with a cover note that read, For you, Mr. Police, call me God. They demanded 10 million in unlimited withdrawals, 
or the lives of children in the area would be threatened. This whole ordeal was over money. The letter was left pinned to a tree outside of a restaurant where the snipers had shot and wounded a man who was out to dinner with his wife. Yeah, he was out to dinner with his wife and they shot him. Later, put the letter on the tree. Now, I'm not reading the whole three pages, but you could definitely look it up. But again, for you, Mr. Police, call me God. And then they demanded 10 million in unlimited withdrawals or they were gonna kill all the kids in the area. Yeah, they were real, real outstanding members of society. Fucking cocksuckers. Like literally, as far as murderers go, even they were just like pieces of shit, so. And moving on to one of the biggest pieces of shit that I like to study, Dennis Rader, who, by the, by the way, actually named himself BTK. He gave himself his own moniker, and that's pretty unheard of, because usually the media is going to dub you with your moniker, but he gave it to himself by letters to the police. And uh, if you don't know anything about him, he, let's say, let's, let, let's see how I would say this. Uh, after his chilling murder method of bind torture kill between 1974 and 1991, Raider killed 10 people in Sedwick County, Kansas. And it might be Segwick. It's either Sedwick or Segwick County, Kansas, with gaps in between to, get it, to dedicate more of his time to being a family man. So he took a lot of cooling off periods in between murders, but he also, during that period, was taking pictures of himself hanging from trees in women's lingerie with makeup on. He also dug holes in the ground, laid it like he was dead, took pictures like that, jerked off in panties and just uh, choked himself, did all kinds of really, really bizarre, crazy stuff. And I use the, the word crazy very seldom. Dennis Rader was fucking crazy. Rader believed that he could out with the police, so he sent them taunting letters. And he did this in a way to where he really wrote poorly, like, Completely like he actually had no education because he was smarter than the police in his own mind and he thought that that would throw them off because in his mind he was very intellectual and very educated even though he wasn't. He was a dumb fuck and he didn't have any college degrees. He didn't have anything like that. But in his own mind, he was smarter than everybody. One of his poorly written letters read and bear in mind that I am reading verbatim, like I am reading exactly what he wrote. Okay, so, when this monster enter my brain, I will never know, but it here to stay. Society can be thankful, sick, that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at time by daydreams of some victim being torture and being mine. It a big, complicated, sick game, my friend of the monster play, putting victims 
number down, follow them, checking up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He already, sick, chosen his next victim. And he signed this, yours truly, guiltily, BTK. Yes, guiltily. So he even made up his own little words during this. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I try to understand the reason why he misspelled so many things and wrote such poor grammar, and I just don't get it. He was caught after he upgraded his technology and sent his letters on a floppy disk, which was immediately traced to him. He actually used, if I remember right, he used a computer from his church because he was a deacon in his church. Yeah, he was a man of God, right? At least that's what everybody around him thought while he was hanging kids in basements and all the other disgusting shit that he did. He should have just killed himself long, long ago. Okay, moving on. The next one I want to read a little excerpt from is Jack the Ripper. And we, we all know who Jack the Ripper is. If, if you don't know who Jack the Ripper is, you shouldn't be listening to this show. Please turn it off and go look up online Jack the Ripper, okay? Because it is literally the first, I would say the first serial killer that actually existed that we know about. As far as like things being written and factual things. Now, serial killing has been going on since the beginning of man, so no telling when that started. But as far as factual serial killers, this is one of them. This, this is the one. The terrifying case of Jack the Ripper still haunts London today. In 1888, 1888, the chilling serial killer targeted impoverished areas around Whitechapel. The bodies of his victims were discovered with their throats cut open and with abdominal mutilations. So basically he cut their throats wide open and then he just did lots of sick, disgusting shit. Probably shit that even Slayer wouldn't write about to their abdominal areas. Now on September 27th, 1888, the Central News Agency received this letter, which they believed was a hoax, but they found out later that it was not. And it reads like this. It reads exactly like this. I don't know why I keep saying that. Okay, Jack the Ripper, night, uh, Jack the Ripper, 1888, September 27th. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly. Wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work. Then give it out straight. My knife is so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Now, Jack the Ripper did not come up with his own moniker. The, I guess it would be, who, who did he send it to? The Central News Agency. 
I'm assuming that that's who actually dubbed him as Jack the Ripper because he did not start calling himself that. Now, three days, three days later, a double murder took place. And I'm talking three days later after September 27th, 1888. Three days later, a double murder took place. True to his word, the Ripper cut a portion of the earlobe off of his, off of his victims and sent it to the police. The case, to this day, has never been solved. Although, lots of people claim to be related to Jack the Ripper, most of it is bullshit, because it has to be, because if you have 10 to 15 people saying, I know who Jack the Ripper was, literally 14 out of the 15 are full of shit, and possibly all 15 are full of shit. There is one guy, and I cannot remember his name, but there is one guy that I, he, he thinks it was his great-grandfather, and he has a lot of evidence, and it could be him, but I don't know, and it's not factual, so I'm not going to say it's factual. So my last little love letter about all this great stuff is the Zodiac Killer. Now, most of us know the Zodiac Killer because there was also a movie made about the Zodiac Killer. And if you're from California, where these murders were taking place, you should probably know a lot about the Zodiac Killer. In the late 1960s, the Zodiac Killer targeted four men and three women between the ages of 16 and 29 in Benicia Vallejo, Lake Beresa, in San Francisco. I'm going to say that twice. Five victims were killed during his reign of terror. He sent several letters, including four cryptograms, to the local Bay Area press. It's believed that his true identity will be revealed if the ciphers can be decoded. Only one of the ciphers or ciphers have ever been solved. Schoolteacher Donald Harden and his wife Betty cracked the code which reads, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise. And all they have that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collection of slaves for my afterlife. And then it just has a bunch of stupid letters that mean absolutely nothing now this is still unsolved to this day if you've seen the movie you know that and uh, he did wear a mask it was creepy and the dude was definitely creepy now thinking that everybody you kill is going to be your slaves in afterlife make me think that there's gonna be a lot of people out there with a lot of slaves but Unfortunately for him, I think that's all bullshit. I don't think that if you kill somebody, they become your slave in an afterlife. 
In fact, it could be quite the opposite. You could have quite a bad afterlife for killing people. Whether there's a god or not, it still may be a little strainful. Who the fuck knows? Alright, so that's it. I hope you guys have a beautiful Halloween. I just threw this out there because it was Halloween. I figured I needed to do something. Now, the next episode will be coming out very soon, and it will be very different from this. We will have lots of Tiger King. We will have discussions. We will have all kinds of stuff. And it is about Dimebag Daryl. So, I probably shouldn't have told you that. Don't Google anything. Wait for me to tell you because half the stuff out there, like with most of these stories, is bullshit. Anyway, till next time, please follow my Instagram. I will follow you back. Music underscore murder underscore podcast or email me at murdercast at mail.com. I'm going to end this show with a song that I just recorded at a studio called Rabbit Hole Studios in Fresno. And I just needed to get in the studio to do something. And it's a little different, a little more bluegrassy than what I usually do. But take a listen to it. Feel free to mail me and tell me how bad it sucks. I, I, I can take it. It's totally good. I really appreciate you hanging out with me. I really hope that you are all having a beautiful Halloween. It is now 10.50 p.m. on Saturday night. It is going to be Halloween in an hour and 10 minutes. And I'm getting ready to upload this. And I hope that you dig it. You know? I hope you dig, man. All right. I will talk to you in a week or two with a brand new episode that's going to be way better than this one. Have a beautiful night. So
True. 